I went on an adventure, dear Wiggly listener, around America. If you want to find out more, you can go to www.heathergorange.com and listen to things like the Cherry Cast. Because last night I was sat here listening to the Cherry Cast and she thought that I had taken the mickey out of her for being stood by a compost heap. What's the Cherry Cast? Cherry is Cherry Cochrane, Richard. Okay. And welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> and secretly we're sat here with... Farmer Phil. There we are, it's all introed nicely. Shall we have a little bit of music? It's Cherry Cochran, and she was the lady who kindly invited me to go and spend a couple of days with the Amish community, okay. uh, where she delivers vegetables right. and, and fruit. And so you must go and listen to the Cherry Cast. It's really good, especially for people that have got a bereavement in the family because she gets over it on the cast. It, it sounds miserable, but it's not. Yeah. It's a really quite inspiring show. Right. She was great. Anyway. This special will take you on a tour through California, a little bit of LA, up to Washington State where we meet Podchef, and over to Boston where I talk to a podcaster who makes a podcast called Garden Fork. So enjoy the show. Yeehaw! Well, I'm here at the Podcast Expo and we've just finished it and I am very pleased to be talking to Meredith. Meredith, welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. I'm living green. Absolutely. Now, Meredith and I hooked up because we found each other on the UK iTunes homepage. We're the top three, aren't we? We are indeed. Big banners along the top. Excellent. It was so exciting to see you next to me. Absolutely. So it's a Living Green podcast, and I've been and checked out a few episodes, and I love the one with American Green. America the Green. That's another podcast, another green podcast that's out there. And I love the one checking out you, videocast. The Getting to Know Meredith. Yeah, Yeah, that's a fun episode. A little short video, five-minute video. Yep, that's Mm -hmm. the one to start with, I think. Yeah, a lot of people like that one. Yeah, Yeah. Um, but there's one about mushrooms. Yes, this is one of my favorite interviews. This is episode 10. His name's Paul Stamets, and he's known as the Mycelium Messenger. For your listeners who may not know who he is, I bet they know Leonardo DiCaprio. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Wherever (laughs) you are. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Leonardo produced a film called The Eleventh Hour, and it's eleventhhourfilm.com. It's a very big movie in the United States and abroad, and Paul Stamets is in that movie. So just to give you some legitimacy as to who he is. Okay. And um, mycelium is actually when you have a piece of wood and you pick it up. Mycelium is the white stuff underneath, and I bet your listeners know what mycelium is for sure. So what he believes is that mycelium is going to save the planet. How? (laughs) Well, what's most interesting is that 
um, Paul studied psilocybin mushrooms, those are the hippie trippy ones, uh, in the 70s with a DEA license, and he did it legitimately as a um, drug enforcement agency. Okay. So he did it with license is the point. You can't just say, you know, in the media, like, so the guy was, you know, doing mushrooms. (laughs) And... You know, had this cool huge smoke. awakening and yeah. had an intellectual. I mean, we got to like make it all legitimate, yes, a right? D E A. Yes, D E A. And he does not do that anymore. No, cool. He made that very clear. Yeah. But um, what's interesting is he's really trippy and unusual and intellectual, and he's got scientific proof and has worked with the president of the United States to demonstrate how mycelium actually cleans up oil spills. What's also interesting is they're finding mycelium around nuclear waste plants, and it's naturally growing there because he believes that the mushrooms actually have consciousness and that their consciousness is moving to those places of darkness or things that we don't want to have on the planet and going there and growing and healing and taking care of the problem. So he is this very extraordinary and unusual, very high-level cosmic feeling about mushrooms and He's got a mushroom farm. It's up in uh, Washington, right outside of Seattle. And he's, I mean, he's just your standard mushroom farmer. Meredith, are you a hippie? <laughs> <laughs> Some say I was, and now I've come out of it. Uh-huh. I explored that, that domain very greatly. But you were into internet marketing. I was. I grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin, then moved to Chicago and rode that digital wave and uh, sold some of the first internet advertising banners for some of the first online networks in the late 90s. And you even worked for a mail order company. I did, I did, similar to yours, but it's called the the Sharper Image. But I moved there in, the, in uh, 1999, I moved to California. In fact, I was just talking to my dad and I said, Dad, when did that happen? When did the hippie transition happen? When you moved to California, <laughs> and then you quit your job and went on that big trip <laughs> so you got to San Francisco I did so you went let's go to San Francisco this is a and singing you podcast went, well it's not normally but I don't know why it's just come over me today uh, and you went across the Golden Gate Bridge I did should I do that definitely what's definitely. the other side ooh the other side is full and alive with chakra systems and new age book authors and all sorts of people who are living green. There's a place called Mill Valley, California, and that's where many of our spiritual authors and self-help gurus reside. And there's yoginis and gurus come and people wear white and meditate and there's farmers markets. It really, ah, it's an whoa, extraordinary whoa. place. Farmers markets. Now you're revolutionary, talking. right? Yeah, absolutely. Now you're talking my language. <laughs> so See, there's a place we can connect. I know. Yeah, yeah. You just gone there somewhere, but you're back. I'm back. So it's food key to people that are in this kind of mode. Yes, food is the number one thing that sustains me in my life, and. 
in the lives of many of the people. I lived in Marin for 10 years, or the Bay Area for 10 years, and the connection that people are making with food, as well as the farmers who come to the markets and looking in them in the eyes, and we were talking about uh, stinging nettles earlier. That was my first experience with farmers markets and really getting well-connected to food. So I feel that that is the biggest global transition that we can make so is getting back to the land. Have you had stinging nettle soup? Yet? I haven't had stinging nettle soup. In fact, in episode one of my podcast, you can search on type Living Green into iTunes and it'll come right up. Rowan Gabriel, who uh, is the founder of Earth TV and Organic Leather, she's actually um, English and she goes through the recipe on her podcast with me and she shared it with me many, many years ago. Sounds Stick. Yeah. Now, we are in, well, you tell me we're not in LA. We're in Ontario, which is just outside of LA. Correct. And I must say that, to my mind, I haven't seen much evidence of anybody being particularly green. For example, if we walk out from the hotel, we will see the Hummer garage. We will. If we go any further, it seems to me that people drive everywhere and that the whole place is covered in concrete. Is there more to this place than a concrete jungle? Well, there's definitely more than to this place than a concrete jungle because there's people. And one of the things that's very unique about my podcast and the way that I view the world as far as what is environmental, what is green, is Living Green focuses on the attitudes, values, and beliefs of individuals who come on my show. So rather than looking at your environment in its physical surroundings, we can take a look at how do the people look? How does their skin look? What does it look like from the foods that they're eating? Are there bicycles being used for transportation? Only three hours north of here, I live in Santa Barbara, California, and there's a big law right now going through in the city to have more bikers on the street, and it's being spoken about. Now, so, whoa, because biker in the UK means Harley Davidson Oh, rider. bicyclist. Okay. Yeah, bicyclist. Okay. So one of the biggest challenges about moving to Southern California for me has been it is less green. I mean, Marin County is probably one of the more green places in the world. So is it is it concrete here? Yes, it is. And that's why it's so important that the number one thing I encourage everyone to do is if you're in a conversation around global warming, go back to what is the person eating with their food? Take them to their garden, teach them how to garden, get their hands in the soil, get them established that a carrot is a root plant. Here's what it looks like. And get those, particularly I love spinach and purple cabbage. The beauty of slicing open a purple cabbage in front of someone who doesn't know what how beautiful the inside of a purple cabbage is, there's a whole world when you open that, just in its beauty and artisticness. And teaching our children to establish a relationship with food is the number one issue on the planet. On that note, it seems to me that you've got an overall ambition to be a farmer Phil. Uh, Will it be uh, a farmer Meredith? <laughs> I sure would love it. If I could do what you're doing in the United States or in Costa Rica, you know, I'd like my version to be kind of... Um, 
you go somewhere and the hotels are actually like, you know, there's hotels around this conference center, but instead of it being a conference center, it's a farm and it's digitally activated. So there's devices and recordings and video cameras all around. And there's also a community and places to live and people can almost like come and stay for a week the way you would go to Disneyland. But instead of it being filled with all these machines and boom, bah, zoos, sizzle sizzle that it's it's really has like the opportunity to see to hear the quiet wings of a butterfly or to really sit in the sun after having worked really hard in the garden but to give people particularly corporate executives that experience so my my long-term vision is to be able to create a community of people who create an experience that's like a Disneyland environment that's based on real food, real life, real authenticity, real intimacy, and that people can come and visit and then take a little bit of that back to the homeland and start to slightly shift their attitudes and their behaviors and their relationship to their land. And when they do that, I think that their relationship to their bodies will change. And when we change our relationship to our bodies, we change our relationship to that inner voice inside. And that inner voice can start saying really beautiful things when it's well-nourished through food and through the land. Darling, you are my first ever corporate hippie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, amen, sister. It's nice to meet you. (laughs) Thank you, Meredith. All right. Thank you so much. And um, if you want to know anything else, you can always go to 3Outcomes. That's the number 3, 3outcomes.com. And there's television coverage of an interview with Al Gore, me and Al Gore, and uh, Jack Johnson, if you know him. He's a famous musician and lots of other people. So there's lots of online content for you to view. And there's tons of shows on the Personal Life Media Network, which is personallifemedia.com. And that's where you'll find me, right under Living Green, Effortless Ecology for Everyday People. Fantastic. What a name dropper she is. (laughs) Because we haven't been to the southern states on this tour, let's have a little bit of southern humour before we wing our way to Vancouver. If you have to vacuum the bed, it's time to change the sheets. (laughs) Podchef is a star. He's a megastar. We're in Washington State. Let's hear about his cattle. So tell us where we are in the world. We're at the centre of the universe here at Podchef Villa on Podchef Island. We're heading up the road. Sites unknown. <laughs> I must say, this is an interesting vehicle we're in, isn't it? Go on, Phil. Well, it's nearly as clean as my truck, <laughs> but not quite. We seem to have to put some quantity of fluid in it. Yes, well, it does leak a few things. <laughs> I don't know whether it's a family car masquerading as a truck or a truck masquerading as a family car. I think the salient point is that Mrs. Podchef made a declaration ten minutes ago that Podchef is not mechanically minded. Which he denied. <laughs> Which I denied soundly. So these look like some rare breeds. 
What are they? The heifer is an almost pure, purebred Scottish Highland, and the deer is half Highland, half Jersey from the dairy up the road. And we have two purebred Cotswold Weathers. They're beautiful, aren't they? Those they are Weathers. In fact, that one there is Grand Champion Fleece winner three years in a row. Uh huh. And what? how much fleece do they produce? With two shearings, they give about 60 pounds of wool a year. And what's the origins of those then, Podchef? Because I've never seen one of those. You've never seen one? No. They're from the Cotswolds. Surprisingly Logically. enough. <laughs> Next door to our place. It would seem that Except, on the basis I, mean, I have been to the Cotswolds, the Hereford, they're not very prolific in the Cotswolds. They're a rare breed, yeah. and they're listed, at least on the American Re Rare Breed Society list, they're listed at least in critical condition, if not marginal. So just to describe what we're looking at, well, you could describe it two ways. It either looks like a small llama with Angora goat-like hair, and it's sooty-coloured and blotchy, and obviously the wool, by the looks of it, is quite a fine wool. You'd shear it and it would come out fine quality. It's, it's got a very fine crimp and it's beloved of hand spinners. Yeah. It's not a very commercially viable wool because it has too much crimp and too much fineness. Now, your listeners might know what an Oxford sheep is, and that is nothing but a cross, a purebred cross, between the Cotswold and a Hampshire, which is more common. We'll take a picture. Farmer Phil, get the camera out. And the hairdo at the front? That is the traditional top knot right. that is prized of this breed during the shearing. So it's sort of like dreadlocks. Sort of like dreadlocks. Yeah. yeah. In some regards, they can go a bit wool blind, but in other regards, it keeps the flies out of their eyes and keeps fly strike from happening. Wool blind? You mean they can't see out of the fringe? Yeah. It, uh, it actually it can cause scarring on their corneas. Right. Now, I wish my mangy Highlanders would have a bit more hair in front of their eyes because they do get tremendous fly problems with the flies drinking their tears. And is this a commercial outfit here or is this, the, is this pet pod chef? No, this is a commercial venture first and foremost. The fleece from the Cotswold Weathers gets sold even though they are my daughter's pets and they're just the remnants of what was a different flock and the beginning of what's hopefully a different, bigger flock of both wool and meat breeds of sheep. The steer, I'm afraid, is a terminal project. He will be an honored guest at dinner sometime in the next year. And the heifer is the basis of our future meat breeds. So the steer is gonna be burger? Burger, roast, chop, and, and how brisket. long does he take to <clears throat> fatten? Because he looks fairly old. Ideally, he's 18 months now, and ideally uh, a, a Scottish Highland cattle um, need about three years before they're properly finished to, to be big enough to eat. Good uh, Lord, because nice. he has a bit of jersey in him, he'll probably be ready at about 24 months. So how does that compare with yours, Farmer Phil? Well, most of our bulls go entire, so that, that for, for reasons of the rules and what supermarkets require puts a, a, a long stop on the job, but most of ours would be slaughtered between 12 and about 15 months, something like that. And taste-wise, Podchef, what does that mean compared to this Highland? Well, the, the, the correct sort of beef, uh, an Angus or something like that, that, that finishes out much quicker and grows much bigger will have every bit as good a beef as a longer term animal. These are 
purely grass-fed, so they do take longer to finish. They'll have a, a perhaps a bit deeper flavor and texture and more pronounced beefiness to them. Now, he could be taken now, and he'll have plenty of meat on him. It's just that a little bit longer, a little bit bigger would be better. But you've kept him essentially because he's a rare breed, as well as... Yeah. yeah. Well, he was... Because he's a steer, he's not much used for a breeding program, obviously, but because he was... Uh, because he is a rare breed and because he's going to be delicious, we keep him around. Yeah. <laughs> now, the heifer, we can now use her to access any number of other rare breeds because there's a number of rare breeds that are based on Scottish Highland breeds and we can use her to breed back into a purely Scot Scottish Highland program to preserve the breed. We can use her to breed with an Angus and the Angus Scottish Highland breed is a fantastic meat animal. We can breed her to a dairy bull and get a milking cow or into an even rarer breed like the belted Galloway, uh, an Irish breed of cattle, or a Dexter, or Kerry, and start a semi-purebred line of at least keeping the genes in the, in the genetic pool. And, and why do you think that's important? You know, who cares? Why don't we just have Holsteins and well, be done with it? No, we can't, we can't do that, because if we limit our options too much, when a disease strikes that... that See, the, these highland animals are out here in, in the middle of a field with no shelter whatsoever. They've been here all year like this. They don't have a shed. They're out here in the snow. They're a very hardy animal. They can survive on minimal browse or lush pasture. And while we prefer the latter of those two, they're perfectly happy to be driven into the brush and eat whatever's available. Now that's an important characteristic for any animal in, in terms of survivability as the climate changes and just in terms of genetic makeup. You can now breed a bit of Scottish Highland into a finer cattle, say a South Devon, that isn't as hardy and perhaps that characteristic of being able to browse on thistles and brambles might be passed on. And they are really hairy. They are. That double <laughs> layer of fat, extra hair. And that protects them both from the sunshine and from the cold. Any comment, Phil? Bear in mind he's to my left, but they're a bit short, aren't they? They are a bit short, and they've got very long and very sharp horns, which I, <laughs> I, have, to, I have to say I wouldn't be tolerating. But I think, in, in the bigger picture, because these are rangier animals... Um, not rangy in the terms of, of lean or anything, but I mean they're free-ranging animals and they're out here all year, the horns are actually part of the cattle's cooling system. Really? Oh, yeah. Have you, you ever seen a, a, a horn like that lopped off or broken off? Spurts gallons of blood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so those horns circulate blood up in there. And so especially for working oxen, horns, full set of horns is essential because that helps them cool off and they don't get as tired. But remember, Podchef, presumably you're not having to corral these things every few weeks for a TB test. Well, I could if I had to. They come for grain. I think some of the difference is that Podchefs are usually, by the look of it, very happy to see Podchef. Some of mine are not so happy to see me. <laughs> <laughs> TB tested one too, I'm too many. So in your opinion, is it really important to keep the horns on cattle? Not necessarily. I opted these two because by the time I got them, they had already grown horns and I have lopped horns off of cows before and they remember it. 
and and they associate you with that agony and so if you get them when they're fresh born and you can keep the horns off of them and there's a number of ways either cutting them out or burning them out or putting a caustic paste on to prevent them from growing then that's generally okay and it's a humane way and they don't feel any pain so so to speak uh, but if you have to actually cut them off at a later state, they do remember that and they do take exception to it. Farmer Phil? I, I agree. I mean, we disbud all ours um, as soon as the buds are, are there after birth. But I also agree with, with Podchef that Highland cattle horns go with Highland cattle. Yeah. I don't suspect the Highland cow would look quite the part without its horns. No. Uh, yeah, my comment was really from practical points of view. Also, these cattle are not being fed through a barrier, which yeah. is where our cattle truly get into problems because if they get pushed, the horns will effectively trap them and you get into problems with them hurting themselves or each other. These aren't in that situation. Now, as another point of fact, horns are a fantastic indication of nutrition. The, the highland heifer, the ginger bird there, when I received her from the farm where I purchased her, her horns were twisted. They were little nubs, they were about three inches long, and they both crooked out, which is a clear indication that she hadn't received proper nutrition at some point in her life. Now, you can see, they look like a proper set of horns. Now, she's quite a bit younger than the steer, but still, her horns are straightened out, they're growing fine, and she's now thriving on the food that I give her. And so I can tell, because I just grass-feed these, that they're getting the proper mix of what they need to grow horns because the horns are the first thing to, to see detriment when and they're starving. When you kill all uh, matey out, will you use his horns for anything? Is there any use? Well, if, if I'm not biodynamic at that point myself, I will find a biodynamic farmer to sell those horns to or give to because right now, in America anyway, and thanks to foot and mouth and BSE and all the rest of that, and people like Phil who lop their cattle's horns off at conception, <laughs> there's a tremendous uh, dearth of natural cattle horn for people who choose to practice biodynamic agriculture. And what do they do with them? Well, biodynamic farmers believe that packing a cow horn full of manure at certain phases of the moon and burying it till it ferments creates a powerful kind of fertilizer component to add to their compost mix. And it's the synthesis of the manure and in the horn that creates whatever they generate. And that added to the compost creates a more powerful form of compost for their system in their belief. Uh, I've seen it in practice. I've tasted the food. And I can only believe that whatever they're doing is right. Good Lord. Now we're off to Boston. <laughs> Amazingly, with Eric Rothschild. Rothschild, and he's from Garden Fork and also Real World Green. And we just sat down to talk to each other because Linda Mills introduced us, didn't right. she, Eric? Yes, she did. And uh, he said, well, I do a gardening show where I go up to my home in Connecticut and just hang out and kind of farm and garden. <laughs> and then I have a green show called Real World Green. Yep. And I said, ah, well, Wiggly Wigglers is kind of a farming, gardening, green show. And we went... Ooh. There you go. Yeah. So tell me how you started. Well, I, I actually I spent my whole life in television production, and I was pitching a cooking and gardening show to the cable networks here in the United States. Yeah. 
and no one picked up the show. And then I ran across actually an Australian video blog called Crash Test Kitchen. Yeah. And I decided that I would make my own cooking and gardening show just like that. So I made a, I started a video podcast called Garden Fork, and it's gardenfork.tv is where you can find that. Fantastic. And then it just kind of took off, and it's a total blast. It's, um, I live in New York half the time, and I live in Connecticut half the time. And how far and are those places away? They're two and a half hours away from each other, yeah. about 140 miles. So you're a townie in the week. And a country bumpkin on the weekend. Right, yeah. We try and take a long weekend because with the internet now, you can work with your laptop. So. Sure. And then basically whatever I'm doing on the weekend, I make a video show about it. And I repair my, I had to repair my truck the other day. And I have uh, two yellow Labrador retrievers. And so they're always around and they're getting in trouble. I and have we have two chocolate Labradors. So you know what it's like. <laughs> so I'm under the truck fixing the leaf spring and they want me to throw the Frisbee. Yeah. So they're in, the, they're in this episode. Okay. Um, and, and we also, we have a rescue uh, racehorse. He's a thoroughbred racehorse. And he's being trained to be a dressage horse for my wife. So he's in the show. So I've understood the gardening show. What about the real world green? Well, I started Real World Green because I saw a lot of green media and green websites out there, and a, a lot of them weren't kind of based in reality, I felt. They were they were kind of appealing to kind of like a granola crowd of people. And, you know, that's all well and good. I think that's fine. But I, a What's lot of... What's a granola crowd? You know, those kind of hippie, hippie feel-good, you know, people do a lot of yoga kind of thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not that that's a bad thing or anything wrong with that. I mean, I'm, I'm a tool belt guy. My grandfather was a building super in the Bronx, and we never hired anyone to fix anything. We just fixed everything ourselves, and we didn't know what to do. We just kind of figured it out, and we didn't have the money to hire someone. So I've always been very practical. And with the green movement, where there's a lot of things you can do to reduce your impact on the earth in a practical way, like compact fluorescent bulbs and things like that. And you'd be surprised how many people don't really know about that. And I think a lot of the green programming I see out there kind of turns off the average guy that drinks Budweiser. I mean, in the UK, it's a different beer, probably. Oh, we have Bud. Yeah, I know. The, the Americans have infiltrated <laughs> the UK. Um, so I just started this show where I basically go up on the roof of my apartment building in New York and talk about one simple topic that you can digest in hopefully five minutes and just kind of a simple thing you can do to reduce your impact on the earth. And What was last week's topic? Paper cups. Go on. You know, the coffee the coffee cups that you get from, well, at least we drink coffee in the United States here. Yeah. Um, it's a huge waste. Yeah. And you can easily get these plastic mugs that are, they call them travel mugs here in the States. Yeah. A lot of companies give them away as like a little bonus gift. You can get them at a tag sale or people sell them very inexpensively. And if you use that instead of a paper cup, you're reducing a lot of paper, first of all, having to be harvested and created, and also a lot of paper products going into the waste stream. Because paper cups for hot liquids are not recyclable. So. Funny you should mention that because I tried over here. Actually, it was a Starbucks makeup cup that yeah. actually kept the cup of tea hot. Yeah, yeah. And it worked really well. And so I, I really think that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, I, and I've got one with me in my bag now, ready for not using cups in Starbucks, etc. So I've got that, done that. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, they're coming out with stainless steel ones or metal ones that work really well. The plastic one. In, I mean, in the United States, there's a lot of companies that give away as a free gift. They give you this, you know, travel coffee mug. Yeah. Thing. So it's like, why not just use it? Yeah. Well, the thing is, remember, you Americans don't like your water hot. You don't like it hot enough. Yeah. So it's very difficult <laughs> for us English. But I can say that the Starbucks model 
keeps the water hot enough to actually make the tea bag work. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know about the free ones, but definitely that Starbucks ones work. I, I have a couple English friends that come over and they make the tea very hot. Yeah. And I'm always like, it's too hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I have a friend who says that if you pour boiling water on a tea bag, it burns it. But I can happily say that is not the case and that you lot definitely need to warm up your water. You've got the beer, right? Cold beer is fine with me and the icy glasses, yeah. but the tea water is rubbish. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize for the United States. <laughs> and I apologize for our beer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So I'm off on another trip soon. <laughs> so we'll have another special, but I hope you enjoyed this week's. If you'd like to subscribe, go to iTunes. Otherwise, Tell your mates, eh? We could do with a few more listeners. We've only got just you, really. But thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye for me.